chapter 2. We'll be making our way through this whole chapter today. And our theme is, Our Coincidence, God's Providence. Our Coincidence, God's Providence. Well, one form of storytelling that has become very popular in recent years, particularly on TV or in films, is to tell one story from the point of view of several different characters involved. And so instead of taking you from point A to point B once, uh, the storyteller takes you from point A to point B several times, each time from someone else's point of view. Uh, Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk, for example, is a good example of this. Uh, Over the course of the film, we see the same events happening through the eyes of a fighter pilot in the sky, uh, an ordinary citizen on the English coast when the call goes out for every boat available to cross the channel, and two of the young soldiers who needed to be evacuated from Dunkirk. And one of the results of this type of storytelling is that what seem at first to be disconnected characters and experiences and events As you see the story told several times, you see how these characters and events are very closely connected. And as the story is told several times, you begin to see and you anticipate that person A is going to meet person B at this particular juncture. Well, there's something of that in Ruth chapter 2. At first, it might seem to be a story about coincidences, about random characters who just so happened to cross paths at particular times. But what we are supposed to see in all these supposed coincidences, friends, is God overruling in his sovereign control. God bringing all things together for good for his people. God is particularly working for the good of two poor, needy widows, Naomi and Ruth. As I've mentioned in previous weeks, to be a widow in that time and place was dangerous, potentially disastrous. Ruth and Naomi, as we saw last time, are women of faith. They do have faith in God, but they're also women in desperate need, without the prospect of life in their family or land to claim. And in the Old Testament era, before God's people had a full understanding of the resurrection and eternal life as we have today, God's people thought of eternal life in terms of life and land in their families. This was a picture that God gave them of eternal life. And so every family in Israel needed to have a, to, to have a stake, to have a claim to make upon their family's piece of land, the land of Israel. And if they didn't have children to carry on their family name and their family line, It really was disastrous. It was like saying that that family no longer belonged among God's people. So Ruth and Naomi, friends, need life and they need land. They still won't have life or land secured by the end of chapter 2. But what we see in chapter 2 is God beginning to provide. And in what seem to be coincidences, we are to see God's providences. And that remains the case for us today. And so as we think about God providing for Naomi and Ruth here today, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the place where God provides. The place where God provides. And the place where God provides 
is his covenant community. His covenant community. Naomi and Ruth are back in Israel. They need to find a way of putting food on their table. And it's Ruth, the foreigner, the new convert, who decides to do something about their need for food. Look at verse 2. Ruth says, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. Just notice in passing, by the way, friends, the courageous faith that Ruth shows here. She's the foreigner. She's in a whole new land. She's vulnerable. She's a widow. But she doesn't sit at home feeling sorry for herself. She, she goes out. She takes the bull by the horn, so to speak. She takes initiative to go and find food for her family, believing that God will provide. And God does provide. And he provides for Ruth through the covenant community of God's people. The place, friends, where God's law is lived by and adhered to. God's law commanded, specifically commanded, his covenant community to provide for people like Ruth. We read earlier from Leviticus 19 and verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. That's for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And so God had specifically written into his law, the law of the land, that poor people and foreigners who, were, who also by, by stint of their position in life were, were needy, that they were to be provided for. This was essentially the, the benefits system or the asylum system that God had created in the nation of Israel. Notice, by the way, that the benefit system still required the individual to work. Uh, Ruth couldn't just sit at home with Naomi and expect everything to be provided for. She had to go out and work hard. But nonetheless, friends, God's law, God's place provided for people like Ruth and Naomi to be able to eat. And as far as commentators and researchers can tell, there was nothing like this in any other nation at this time. The Moabites didn't have this kind of benefit system. The Philistines, the other nations, the pagan nations of the world, they didn't provide for their people like this. It was every man or woman for themselves in those nations. And of course, it's very likely too that even in Israel, not everybody was abiding by this law. This was the day of the judges. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so probably not everybody was obeying this law. But where true believers were seeking to live in obedience to God's word, friends, God was providing for his people. Needy people would be provided for. Why? Because that's what kind of God Israel worshipped. And everything about the land of Israel served as a message to the world around them, to the people themselves and to their pagan neighbours. It served as a message about the kind of God they worshipped, about his love, his care, his grace, his justice, particularly for the most vulnerable. Leviticus 19 verse 10, You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner among you. Why? Why were they to do this? I am the Lord your God. 
I am the one who saved you when you were vulnerable in Egypt. I'm the one who's brought you into the promised land and provided for all your needs. And you are to show each other and others around you what kind of God I am. Now, I don't mention any of this to get into an analysis of the benefit system in our nation today. Although it does remain a Christian principle that each of us should work for our food. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There should be no such thing as a lazy Christian. All of us are commanded to work. But the larger point, friends, is this. Where God's law is obeyed, God's love will be displayed. Where God's law is obeyed, God's love will be displayed. Particularly, God's love will be displayed for the most vulnerable and needy and outcast. And even in the days of the judges, spiritually dark days, there were still beams of light across the land of Israel where people like Boaz, as we'll see more of him in a moment, were seeking to obey God's law and enact God's law in their everyday lives, in their community. And where God's covenant people, the church, are obedient to God's word, friends, people will be blessed and the needy should still be provided for today. Where God's law is obeyed, God's love will be displayed. Ruth did have to step out in faith. She did have to work hard. And verse 17 says she did work hard. She beats out 25 or 35 liters of barley grain. Great day's work. But she had this work provided for her to do because she was in a place where God's law was obeyed and God's love was displayed. And you and I are to ensure that so far as it depends on us, God's law is obeyed and God's love is is displayed and in our society today wherever we do see the needs of vulnerable people being met it's tribute only to the influence that God's word has had upon our nation in days gone by whatever good morals we see in our nation today even at the moment as uh, our government prepares to welcome more refugees in from Afghanistan and from other nations that is borrowed morality from God's word and it's good that our nation Uh, does things like that and it's good and right that our nation welcome in refugees and provide for the needy and the vulnerable but that's tribute that's testimony to the impact that God's word has had upon nations like ours and similarly where we see the needy and vulnerable being oppressed where we see them being exploited and trampled upon particularly in the realm of uh, a lack of care for the pre-born or for those approaching the end of life That is testimony to how far away our society is slipping from God's law. You and I, the church, we are to be different. Jesus says we are to be salt of the earth and light of the world. We are to seek to bring as much difference. We are to seek to have as as strong an impact and influence upon our world as possible. To bring God's love to bear on the world as much as possible. And so this would include, if we were to get the chance, welcoming refugees, regardless of colour, class or religion, into our communities, providing for their needs. And if we can't do that personally and directly, it should mean that at least we are eager to give practical financial gifts to people in places who need them. 
whether in our homes, in our raising of our children, whether in our workplaces and dealing with co-workers, superiors, inferiors, places of study, sport, service. We are to obey God's law and display God's love and in so doing, friends, create communities of blessing. Where God's law is obeyed, God's love will be and should be displayed. So the place where God provides his covenant community. But secondly, and more briefly, the possibilities God provides through his sovereign control. The possibilities God provides through his sovereign control. I said at the beginning that on the surface, chapter 2 seems to describe very ordinary, seemingly coincidental events. But behind all these coincidences, the writer wants us to be in no doubt that this is, this is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel taking all these threads and weaving them together into a beautiful tapestry. Look back at chapter 1, verse 22, the last verse of chapter 1. It says, Ruth and Naomi came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They just so happened to arrive as barley harvest began. Barley harvest was actually very short. Some of you who have experience can tell me, I don't know how long it takes nowadays in our society. But in that time and place, it was about two or three weeks long. Very short. And so if Ruth and Naomi had come any later, they'd have missed it. Just so happens they came at the beginning of barley harvest. Did not work out well for everything that happens next. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Ruth sets out to look for a field to work in. And we read, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come. Literally in the original there it says, by chance she chanced upon. Now, the writer is, is going out of his way to say, uh, he's, he's mocking the idea, in fact, that this was just chance. He's saying, well, would you believe it? Lo and behold, she just so happens to come to Boaz's field, the field of a man who is related to her mother-in-law. Didn't that work out well? And the writer here, friends, is mocking that idea of chance, and he is saying, this is God at work. And then look at verse 4. The next coincidence. Behold, look at this. Boaz came from Bethlehem. It just so happened that a few hours after Ruth arrived in Boaz's field, Boaz decided to visit that particular field at that moment. And Boaz finds out about Ruth. And Boaz asks about Ruth. And as we'll see more in a few moments, begins to take care of her. Preaching in this passage, the Reverend Donnelly pointed out that morning... God caused Boaz to wake up at a certain time and gave him the thought of going to check on that particular field at that particular time so that he would meet Ruth. Didn't that work out well? And as we'll consider more in a moment, it just so happens that this Boaz, this particular landowner, is related by marriage to Naomi which means that he could be in a position to help Naomi and Ruth with their needs of life and land. No wonder Naomi says to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 22, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young woman of Boaz, lest in another field you be assaulted. By the end of the chapter, friends, Naomi is beginning to wonder. She's beginning to think, 
maybe God is going to provide for us through Boaz. Remember how bitter Naomi was when she arrived back in Israel? Well, now she's beginning to hope. And friends, what we are to see in this chapter is the the care that God has about the ordinary details of the lives of ordinary people. I said it when when we started the series in Ruth. There are no visions of angels or of heaven or no, no miracles being done in the book of Ruth. It's a book about ordinary people. And what we are to see, friends, is that God cares about the ordinary events in the lives of ordinary people. What really happens in Ruth chapter 2? A woman goes out to work in a field. She has a meal. She goes out and does some more work. And then she goes home again. Nothing could be more ordinary than that. And yet what we are to see in the midst of this is that God sees and God cares and God provides. Tomorrow morning, many of you will leave your homes and go out to work. Maybe even some of you will work in a field. And you'll talk to some people and you'll eat some food and you'll go home again. Is it not immensely comforting for you to know that in the midst of your ordinary day, God sees you, God cares for you, God will provide for you. For those of you with daunting work to do this week, God sees, God cares, God provides. For those of you waiting perhaps on crucial, potentially life-changing news this week, God sees and God cares God will provide. For those of you sick or grieving or suffering, God sees, God cares, and God will provide. There is not one detail of your life, good or bad, that is out of his control. As we thought about a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 8, all things, all things are under the feet of our great King. And we need to look at our lives, friends, our calendars, our to-do lists. And we need to realize that those appointments are God's appointments. And those plans that get canceled or changed, those are part of God's unchanging plans and purposes for our lives. Perhaps we need to believe a little less in coincidence and start thinking more in terms of providence. And we need to submit our plans and our coincidences to our God. When we end up chatting to a neighbour, unexpected opportunity. When someone's running late, when we're sitting on a bus or standing in a queue, what might God want us to do or to say or to pray about? We've all had plans disrupted in this last 18 months, of course. At times, very severely disrupted. And the irony wasn't lost on me that just last weekend, I ended up not being able to preach a sermon largely about providence and had to wait a week to to do so. Are we learning the lessons that God seems to want us to learn at this time, friends? That we are not in control, but he is. Are we learning to depend upon him more? Are we learning the need for courageous faith like, like, like Ruth's? Faith that does go out and act, but faith that also rests in the sovereign control of God. The place God provides, his covenant community, the possibilities God provides through his sovereign control. And then thirdly and finally this morning, the person God provides. 
the person God provides. The person God provides is a worthy redeemer. A worthy redeemer. Look how the writer introduces Boaz in chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. The word worthy there means he's respected. Most likely as well means he's wealthy. He's, uh, he's, we might say he was a pillar in the community, a respected, prosperous man. And we see an example of, of Boaz being a worthy man in how he treats Ruth. Boaz, the Israelite man, shows Ruth, the Moabite foreigner, extravagant generosity and care and respect. First of all, Boaz speaks to Ruth. He speaks to her. He's a respected, successful Israelite man. He has absolutely no need to speak to a Moabite widow at all. But he does speak to her. And when he speaks to her, he calls her daughter, verse 8. He recognizes her as a fellow believer. He treats her as, as a, a, an equal, a, a fellow member of the community of God's people. And then in verse 12, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, friends, that's the language of one believer speaking to another. Boaz recognizing that Ruth trusts in the God of Israel, that she is taking refuge under his love and his care. And this is really Boaz essentially saying to her, welcome to the family. Welcome into the land of God's people. Boaz goes further. He orders his men to make sure that Ruth is not abused or harmed in any way. Uh, there were no fences uh, to uh, mark out the fields. These were sprawling fields for miles around. Women could fall prey to evil-minded men uh, in the far out distance of these fields, but not in Boaz's field. Because he makes a point of telling his men, anything happens to this woman, you're answering to me. He even says to, to, to Ruth that she should drink from the water that his men have drawn. And again, that shows tremendous respect for Ruth. In that culture, usually the women were expected to go off hiking to the well a few times a day for the men. But Boaz doesn't have that system in place. In verse 14, Boaz invites Ruth to his evening meal. And she seems to have been given one of the best seats in the house because Boaz himself passes her food. And the language there even says that uh, he, he, it really means that he heaped food upon her plate. So she, he just kept filling her plate with as much food as she needed. And again in verses 15 and 16, he tells his workers to let Ruth glean, not just in the, in the field, uh, when, when the men have picked up most of the gleanings. But he says, let her even glean among the, the gathered sheaves. Let her pick and pull out of the sheaves as much as she wants. Again, God's law did provide for the poor to glean a little bit from the fields. Boaz is going far beyond that in what he's allowing his men, or in what he's allowing Ruth to get from his workers. Boaz shows extravagant grace he goes out of his way to show love and care for Ruth you see where God's word is obeyed God's love is displayed and it's displayed particularly here in chapter 2 through Boaz and Boaz is not just a, 
as we would say, a random man of Israel. Look at the end of verse 20. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. The word there in the original is very important, goel. means a kinsman redeemer. Uh, Some of the translations have that kinsman redeemer. That's what it means. And we'll think more about the kinsman redeemer in, in the weeks to come, friends. But if an Israelite man died with no children, the kinsman redeemer was to take the land and it was so that it was under the same family name as it always had been. Or if a man died and left a widow with no children, the kinsman redeemer was in some circumstances to marry that widow and provide her with an heir so that again the the family name would continue on and the land would stay in that particular family. You can find details about the kinsman redeemer in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So a kinsman redeemer, friends, was to provide life and land for the needy. Life and land. That's exactly what Naomi and Ruth need. Again, life and land are pictures for God's people of eternal life, of the permanent relationship that they have with their God. And so Naomi and Ruth need a redeemer to give them what they cannot provide for themselves, to give them life and to give them land. Okay, Ruth arrives home from day one in the fields with a big pile of food for her and Naomi. That's great, fantastic. They have enough food for a night or a few days. But she and Naomi have deeper needs than that. And it just so happens, it just so happens that God has provided a Redeemer who can help them. And as well as being a Redeemer, Boaz shows himself to be a man who loves, who obeys God's law and displays God's love through the extravagant kindness that he shows to Ruth. And again, friends, all of us who are part of God's covenant community, the church, we are to be doing something like what Boaz was doing. Christianity is not just about the message we preach, vital and primary though that message is. It's also about then God's people living out that message, living lives of loving service and sacrifice for one another and for our world. The kind of life that backs up the message that we preach. This is why James in the New Testament says, faith without works is dead. Any faith you claim to have that isn't seen in a life of Christ-like love and service for others, it's an empty faith. It's not a true faith. Our lives should match the message that we preach. About a hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, one of the Roman emperors, Antoninus Pius, uh, wanted an explanation for how Christianity had been spreading so quickly across the Roman Empire. A Greek philosopher, Aristides, was summoned to meet the emperor and to give an explanation. And this is the report that he gave to the emperor of Christians at that time. They love one another. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not ungrudgingly and without boasting. Quoting this event in one of his books, Don Whitney says, Concern for others is as much a part of being a Christian as concern for self is for the non-Christian. Meeting needs is the way 
of Jesus. Meeting needs is the way of Jesus. And friends, in our culture of self and my identity and my followers and my likes, and in this particular week of all weeks when we have seen the needs of women and children and Christians threatened by idolatrous thugs, friends, is it not more important than ever that our lives are marked by a concern for others and not just for ourselves? That our lives are marked by obedience to God's word and displaying God's love. Who could you and I be showing extravagant kindness to this week? Who could you and I be heaping blessings upon as Boaz kept heaping blessings upon Ruth? And this doesn't have to be in some big public obvious way, an anonymous donation, an encouraging text message or handwritten card, a prayer, a timely prayer at a moment of need for someone, the, the giving of time or effort or provision. Who could you and I show extravagant kindness to? And why should Christians of all people be marked by such extravagant kindness, such extravagant giving? Well, quite simply, friends, because Jesus Christ has been extravagantly generous to us. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, in the, in the kindness of Boaz to Ruth, as Christians, do we not see little glimmers and little miniatures of the kindness and grace of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave his very life for us? Maybe some of you here today are listening in from afar. You're a bit like Ruth and Naomi at the end of chapter 2. You think you've got everything you need for now. You've got food on your table. You've got clothes on your back. You've got the stuff that you want. You've got the job that you want. But you're ignoring the fact that your greatest need has not been met. Your need of salvation from sin. Your need to know that you have life forever. That you have a dwelling place forever. That's exactly what Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, can do for you. It was no coincidence that Ruth wandered into a field in Bethlehem. It's no coincidence that a thousand years later, a little boy was born in a cow shed in Bethlehem. And it's no coincidence that today you're hearing about that boy who became a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of sinners in whom you must place your trust. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May we trust, friends, in our Redeemer and may we imitate his love in our needy world today. Amen.